Welcome in this Alliance 24-7 podcast, bi-week edition, the first of two bi-weeks for Penn State this year. James Franklin said on the practice field Wednesday evening that if this was their only bi-week, he'd be pretty angry about that setup, but they will take an early one, a little bit of a respite physically for these players who started seven weeks ago in training camp through three games with a 3-0 and record, and of course, always an opportunity for the staff to go get some work done on the recruiting trail when they can step away uh, from g- game preparation for a bit. We'll get into to those aspects of the bye week. We'll talk about Penn State versus Pitt, some final thoughts there. First, we bring in Sean Fitz, and Sean, as we said, another bye week looms in the first week of November, which uh, well-timed with my third anniversary with my wife, so, so appreciate that for the scheduling folks. Uh, but here we are, three weeks in, Penn State 3-0, and and as we've discussed plenty of times, uh, a lot of questions around this team, as you'd expect, but a young group got through it, they are unbeaten, and they are number 12 in the coaches poll, number 13 in the AP poll, top 25. Well, as always, the bye coming at a perfect time, because that's the cliche that we go to every time there's a bye week. Um, I, I definitely get what Franklin's saying. Um, the second bye week will be the more important bye week. This one gives you a chance to to get out on the road and recruit. That's what... and. and and that's not, uh, kind of kind of a misconception that Penn State just kind of puts everything on the back burner to recruit uh, during the bye week. That's what everybody does. I mean, across the country, this is what every staff has to do and get out and see these top targets um, pop down and, and, you know, get get in the school for guys like Keandre Lambert, who's going to decide in, in early October and and go from there. And then, you know, you got two weeks to do it this year. So that's that, that's kind of helpful. But um, bye week is what it is after three games. It's not ideal, but since you have that second one in November, it makes it feel a little bit better. And since it's your anniversary, I could schedule a podcast for that day since we did one on my anniversary last month. So can't wait for that. Yeah, we'll let Hillary chime in there. I'm sure she would have some interesting things to say. Uh, I am terrified of your wife, you. so no. <laughs> Me that's, too. No, that's that not going to happen. Um, <laughs> before we get into some some thoughts on, on Pitt and Penn State, and, and by the way, if you're a subscriber, um, hopefully you've been checking out the last couple of weeks. Sean has had a second look piece up. He invests a lot of time reviewing these games, uh, very detailed analysis. I think this one was over 4,000 words. I know our subscribers have loved it, and if you are not yet subscribed to Lions 24-7, uh, further reason to do so. So tip of the cap to you fits we'll talk about that in a second uh but but first things first uh, a bit of news popping up wednesday uh, penn state confirming that they will be part of this hbo series uh, that's going to focus on four different college football programs arizona state washington state florida uh, first off james franklin's going to have some tough competition from from mike leach and herm edwards uh, i don't know so much about dan mullen in terms of of, of wowing the crowd a bit um, but this, you know, Franklin talked about it a bit before, before things were final and said they were in discussions. Uh, he didn't go on too long about it on the practice field Wednesday, but of course it was the first question and the second question he was asked about. It's a national platform, a chance to bring in a different audience, showcase personalities within your locker room. Um, and as he said, I know there's a lot of purists out there, probably among the Penn state fan base that say this is going to be a distraction. Uh, hey, it, it very well may be, but James Franklin says these guys are used to having cameras in their faces. They do the Unrivaled series. They've been doing that for a while. And let's face it, with social media, these are not young athletes who are incubated from external noise. This is not 1975. Uh, These guys, every single day, if they want to go search their name on Twitter, they're going to find stuff we're writing about it, find stuff that people are talking crap on them. Uh, So I don't think the outside noise is is something that you need to be overly concerned with. But pretty cool opportunity for Penn State fans, and, and you never know what living room it might work its way into. 
the the name searching on Twitter is quite a phenomenon. I just uh, it's incredible to think about. It, it, you just tweet about something during the game, and then three days later, somebody pops up and likes it, or you know, responds to it. Just well, my from, favorite from is five minutes own. after the game ends, someone likes it. That that's yeah, my favorite. That's true too. That's true too. Uh, yeah, but any any exposure is good exposure. It's going to give them a, a great chance. I mean, if it's going to chronicle the week up to Purdue, which is, you know, it's sort of a hard noxy type thing. But um, I, I don't see it as a big distraction. I think if you're saying that cameras will be a distraction in there, you, you, you're clearly just ignoring the, the unrivaled program and the fact that since James Franklin's got here, there's been a, pretty much a camera in every room. I mean, let's be honest. He he always knows where the cameras are. He always knows what what his opportunities are to 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 help himself recruit. And and this is another opportunity to do so. Any exposure that you can get on a this is a big time series right now uh, on HBO. I'm not sure, you know, if it if that's you know, it, it, I don't know. It's it, I think it's it's just going to be a great opportunity for them to to show what they do on a day-to-day basis other than, you know, than their typical unrivaled program. I, I just don't think it's going to be very much different than the, the unrivaled program. Yeah, I, you know, and I'm not sure how much uh, say or, or, or what is kind of laid out in terms of framework for production, what, what HBO can use, can't use. I'm sure those discussions were kind of uh, bounced around before they agreed to anything. But, you know, it, not only just Coach Franklin, it's going to be a chance for, you know, some of those assistant assistant coaches, Jaywan Sider, uh, Sean Spencer, guys that we know have big personalities and, and guys to get in the living room without actually getting on the flight. Um, and, you know, and I think also KJ Hamler is a guy who, who you could see go viral for something he does on this. And then Sean Clifford, you know, they're always going to focus in on the quarterback. I think people across the country got to know pretty well what Trace McSorley was about kind of the chip on the shoulder thing that, that he had throughout his career as the underdog. Sean Clifford's got a different background. And so, you know, everybody will get, you know, if you follow us and you follow our coverage, there's not many secrets about what this program is, is about personality-wise. You've probably seen a lot of our videos and content. Uh, but again, HBO, you're going to reach a, a much broader audience and people who aren't necessarily looking for anything to do with, with what happens on, on the field. They're just kind of curious on what goes on behind the scenes at a big-time program. And I think anytime Penn State can kind of showcase their current, present chapter of their football program and kind of build up on that brand, uh, it's a good opportunity. And if you're looking for information, this probably isn't the place. I mean, this is kind of like the Big Ten Network when they come to, to practice every year and we get all geared up about what they're going to see and what the, what they have to show you. And then they spend half the time doing these feature stories and you don't really get to see much of the team. I think that's probably what you can expect. I mean, you expect the Hamler, expect the Parsons, expect the side stories about Yitor Gross Matos and his, you know, and his family tragedy and things like that. So I think that's probably the way to go. If you're looking for information, it's probably not it. If you're looking for entertainment, I think that's the way that they're trying to go. And we'll look ahead to that in October. For now, we look back to last Saturday. Um, hopefully, you got a chance to check out our post-game podcast. We've produced one after each one of these first three games. Plan on doing that again. We'll see how it goes. Our, our first endeavor on the road this uh, upcoming game at Maryland. But uh, Sean, we were in the Beaver Stadium visiting coaches press box. I'm sorry, visiting coaches box. And uh, it, it was very steamy in there. Uh, and I can't imagine how hot it must have felt when Pat Narduzzi was sending out that field goal unit down seven with, with just under five minutes to go. We know how it turned out. 
that became the overarching uh, conversation from this game. I think people probably bypassed a lot of the game because uh, on the national level, this was a hot topic about Narduzzi's decision, what led to it, um, and, and clearly it did not work out for the pit coach, and he has a lot of things to answer for, and they've got a tough game coming up against Central Florida while Penn State takes its win, wraps up the Penn's, wraps up the pit ser- series, and goes into a bye week. But uh, Sean, obviously aside from encouraging people to go back and listen to about an hour's worth of content that we produced, um, you've done a great job you know, a few days after with your second look, uh, kind of proving some of the stuff we said wrong because, uh, uh, and I, we talked about this before the podcast, a lot of our conversation is, you know, we're, we're coming out of the player interviews and coming off of the press conference, and, and we saw this from up in the press box, and, and we're pretty much rifting. Uh, get a chance here to kind of dial that back a little bit, take a more detailed look, um, and, and, you know, Going to get into some some themes for you, but let's start with some offensive, defensive, MVP uh, notations here. Usually we get a a staff uh, announcement on these awards, but that'll come later, I think, next week in in James Franklin's next press conference. Offensively, I think folks are probably having a little trouble finding an MVP from this last game. Um, Where do you kind of uh, turn your attention to in terms of uh, standout performers on that side of the football against Pitt? Well, first off, it's it's amazing how much you miss on the first viewing, and and, and a lot of that post game podcast is, uh, for lack of a better term, emotional uh, uh, regurgitation. I guess we we talk about the the initial things that we see, and then you go back on the tape, and you're like, "Damn, man, I was way wrong about that." So I've done that a few times in the last couple of weeks. Um, I think the the first uh, the first thing that you jump to. Um, when we were talking in the postgame podcast, you know, the offensive line is not any better. The defense is, you know, they need to be better. And, and granted, the, those are two kind of valid points. But when you look back, I think the offensive line over <clears throat> over the course of the first three games has has been pretty decent. I mean, they, they've, they've done what they needed to do. Um, there's been a lot of um, talk about... You know, the, is it the coaching? Is it technique? I think it's a little bit of both, but I but I also think they're okay. That's why my offensive MVP this weekend was was Will Fries. I went back and looked at the uh, looked at the tape, and really, he's playing his best ball since he's been here. He's done done a really good job at right tackle. There's a reason he's not being rotated out. Des Holmes came in for for Rasheed Walker a couple of times when they wanted to run the ball um, there at the end of the game. But uh, Will Fries has done a really nice job so far, and I think uh, just going back and taking another look at it. He's been sound in pass protection, and that entire group has actually been pretty good in pass protection. A lot of it, and we're going to talk about this later, is going to go back on to Sean Clifford um, but, uh, and, the, and the running backs as well. But Will Fries has been good. I thought Michael Mennett played a really good game. Um, he had a couple of misses that I think kind of, um, you know, you, you, you take a look at the, at the game right away, and you think about whiffing on third down right before the Jordan Stout field goal. He whiffed on, on Jalen Twyman, and, and he got sacked. And that's a, a bad play, no doubt. But across the board, I uh, thought, thought he was consistent, thought he's been pretty consistent this year, Did had a really nice block on the uh, Noah Kane touchdown run. Um, so that offensive line, not as bad as you think. Yeah, and, and I and I read your review on that, and, and I, that, uh, that certainly stood out as well. And Will Fries is a guy that has been mentioned by Franklin earlier this year, and and someone that when you do get a chance to, to look a bit a little bit further at these matchups, he's answered the bell, I think, in a, in, in a lot of ways. And and the biggest the bigger tests definitely lie ahead down the road. We've talked about that for a long time 
all through previewing this season. Uh, It's about getting this offensive line ready to to handle its business against teams like Iowa, Michigan, Michigan State, Ohio State, of course. And and Maryland will present uh, some tests of its own. Uh, Pitt certainly did. I mean, had some success getting after Clifford. Uh, I think I'm going to go with with Noah Kane here because, and people will say, well, it was such a limited sample size. But on that one possession, which, by the way, was Penn State's only touchdown uh, drive beyond the first quarter. Uh, He had seven touches. He produced 53 yards. He produced at least three yards on every single one of those touches. And obviously he capped off that drive with a touchdown. He touched the ball more than KJ Hamler did. He touched the ball more than Ricky Slade did. He touched the ball more than Jahan Dotson did. He touched the ball more than Justin Shorter did. He touched the ball more than Pat Fryermuth did on that one drive alone. So while it was a very condensed sampling of young Mr. Noah Kane, I'm going to go with him for the team MVP because aside from that big burst we saw from Journey Brown in the first quarter that set the stage for Devin Ford's short touchdown and then the big the big pass play to Ricky Slade where he you know broke coverage and and that set up Jordan Stout's 57-yard field goal this was the only real semblance of a major threat offensively against Pitt as that game wore on. And you look at the scoreboard, it made all the difference. So I'm going to go with Noah Kena as the offensive MVP here. I, I will correct something you said earlier. Penn State did put out its players of the week on Tuesday. They just tweeted oh, it they? out. Okay. I, I thought I saw something like that pop up. But Will Fries and Journey Brown were their offensive players of the week. Micah Parsons and Shaka Tony defensive. Jonathan Sutherland and Jordan Stout special teams players of the week. Parsons and Tony, um, you know, just taking another look at the film, were just on another level the other night. Uh, I'm, I'm going to save the easy one for you for Parsons, but Shaka Tony was was all over the place in the backfield for a game in which Penn State didn't really finish uh, as a defensive line getting to Kenny Pickett. Kenny Pickett did a fantastic job getting out and about and, and, and scrambling and getting away. Tony, who was was held for most of the game pretty blatantly, um, can see why he'd be upset <laughs> for not getting his, uh, his numbers on this one. But I thought Tony he was fantastic. He was very good against the run as well. Of course, uh, you know, less than a yard per carry for Pitt, 24 yards and 25 carries. That's a big part of it. But I thought Tony played a really, really sound game in both facets. And I know that's not easy to, to comprehend because people just want to label him as a pass rusher. So Tony was fantastic. Um, I had him at number two behind Micah Parsons. Parsons really came into his own last week. I think got unleashed a little bit, as, as cliche as that sound. Uh, they, they sent him after the quarterback in the second half and he made things happen for some other people, opened up some lanes for some other folks. And, uh, of course, he was he was always around the ball. So I thought uh, really no-brainer in terms of Par- Parsons and Tony. I thought they were 1-2 uh, by, by a pretty wide margin. Yeah, apologies for missing, missing the staff awards. Usually we're spoon-fed that at the Tuesday press conference. No press conference this week with the bye week. So appreciate that, Sean. Uh, yeah, Micah Parsons, I wrote the story last week about how everyone is just captivated, including the Penn State coaching staff and his teammates, about what Micah Parsons can become. It's been the story since he was in high school when, when coaching staffs were trying to sell him on playing both sides of the ball in various campuses across the country. Some liked him at linebacker. Other liked him in the th- with his hand in the dirt. And here he is at Penn State, obviously year to playing the linebacker position and I was pretty amazed Sean some of the responses to that story I wrote last Wednesday were a lot of people kind of thrown in the towel as him as a linebacker long term and, and saying they just didn't see it I think he went out there and gave you a really good showing on Saturday of what you can expect from Micah Parsons when he's playing that buttoned up 
kind of uh, of position. And, and look, three games into his second year playing this spot, we're going to see better games ahead for Micah Parsons. But you referenced him getting after the quarterback a little. He had a really crucial quarterback hurry on Kenny Pickett. Um, when, when Pickett was dealing and it forced a really poor throw from Pickett, a pit, a pit punt near midfield, which was really important at that time, uh, in that field position battle, which, which Pitt really, for the large part, controlled. And then additionally, you know, second straight game where he had two tackles for loss. He's a guy that's getting into the backfield now. I just see him, again, playing looser and playing without a hesitancy that he really had to play with. Because here's the thing with Micah. It's either you see him hesitant at times in the past because things are still new, uh, doesn't necessarily trust the instincts at linebacker, or you see Micah just saying, I, I'm, I think I'm the best football player in the field. Let me go make a splash play. And you see him kind of just, you know, maybe over-pursuing, uh, getting lost in the football field a little bit. That's that, There's been those trials and tribulations a little bit. Get to the point where he produces a game like he did Saturday. He refrained uh, from saying that it was his best performance at linebacker. But I think a lot of us in the media did that for him. And uh, yeah, Micah, defensive MVP. Obviously, Shaka Tony, I thought, had a nice uh, game that was a step forward for him based on what we saw from, from Tony against Buffalo. So encouraging signs with him. But nothing really encourages you more about this defense than, than what Micah Parsons did on the football field. And then from our perspective, getting to speak with Micah, I, I think I was just stuck with him for about 12 minutes during the postgame media session. And he just really carries that, that he just wants to set the tone. And he and he says great things about the defense. He was asked about the field goal attempt for Pitt. And he said, first off, it wasn't an accomplishment for us because we don't like to give up any points. Uh, we don't want to give up any points. And, and people may say, well, come on, Micah, you got to give up some points. But this is a team in the second half, three points surrendered against Buffalo in a game you were losing at halftime. No points surrendered against Pitt in a game you were tied at halftime. This defense has been called upon. We would we were wondering how much they would need to rely uh, on the defensive group as the offense found its footing with, with new pieces and new parts and a second-year offensive coordinator. The defense has responded quite well. They haven't had some of those gaudy statistics that maybe we were expecting. I think the sack department stands out in that regard. But Micah Parsons and this group, and I think you can extend it some, to some other guys as well, as we'll get to, you can see the, the improvement, you can see the pride, and you can really start to see, especially against Pitt, really start to see the swagger brewing. And I think that's a defining characteristic of every great defense. You can see it in the body language, play after play after play, starting to get a little bit of a sense of that with Penn State. But of course, bigger tests lie ahead. I'm telling you, people are focusing on the Kenny Pickett deal you know, and, and, and him having that career day passing, but he didn't throw a touchdown pass. And we've already talked about it extensively in the postgame, uh, what their run defense did, 24 yards surrendered on 25 carries. And uh, it definitely feels like Micah Parsons is, is beginning to find his groove as a, as a catalyst uh, for a defense that I think is finding its confidence. Chris Fowler made a really good point on the broadcast. He talked to Brent Pry. Brent Pry told him it, the, the plan with Micah is – Take the three steps, the first three steps that we tell you, and then let your instincts take over. And I think that's a, a great plan for Micah. Gets him in a in sort of a per, uh, proper position, and then he can just go get it. And you saw that on Saturday uh, when he goes to get it. There's not too many quicker than, to the ball than Micah Parsons. Special teams were huge. I don't think I can um, understate how important field position was in this game it really changed the the flow of the game for both teams both punters were exceptional Blake Gillikin and, and the pit punter the, the Australian kid I, I can't remember his name and I if I remembered it, I couldn't pronounce it they were both excellent 
Jordan Stout, I mean, it's the uh, Jordan Stout Memorial Special Teams MVP for us. Uh, just kicked the hell out of the ball uh, off the tee once again. And a 57-yard field goal, it would have been good from 58. It was fantastic. I mean, the way that must have lifted the spirit of Penn State's players heading into the locker room. Uh, and really just, I, I think it calmed everybody down the stadium a little bit. Um but wow, that that was impressive. I mean, there there's not a lot of weapons in football, period, much less college football that you can send out for a 57 yarder like that at the end of at the end of a half and and connect. You know, we'll see where it goes from here. But two for two on 50 plus yard field goals. Interesting tidbit from uh, Wednesday's media session with Franklin. He was asked about what is what is the decision making process for these field goal kickers because Jake Pinniger has not missed a, a field goal yet. He has not missed an extra point yet. He's done his job. But do these guys know when they're going to get called upon? Is there some kind of threshold? And it's very clear cut. Uh, 49 and under is Jake Pinniger territory. 50 and beyond, you're going to see Jordan Stout. And and Franklin said both of those kind of both of them dominated in those different realms during training camp. Jake Pinniger was extremely consistent from underneath 40 yards. Uh, and then you've seen Stout and what they probably saw from him on the practice field. I, I'm just curious what their comfort zone is. How far does his range extend? Uh, maybe beyond 57. I guess we'll find out eventually. Stout has now has two more, uh, two 50-yard field goals more than scholarships he had from Virginia Tech. So that was an interesting point worth worth noting. Um, it, it's it's really remarkable how much he's changed the special teams, how much Joe Lorig's changed the special teams. I have to throw in the covered, the punt coverage team as well. Um, John Sutherland was the special teams player of the week for Penn State, but Drew Hartlob's down there. Keaton Ellis is down there. Dan Chisena was so close to being down there and making the perfect special teams play, um, but th- they've done a really nice job. The, the one area to take away from the special teams is the return game really not uh, you haven't gotten anything from it yet um, they'd like to see a little bit more consistency Franklin said that on Wednesday night so uh, special teams I mean just a big step forward in the first three games and I'm excited to see what they can do if they can get that return game going yeah thanks for the obligatory uh, Virginia Tech mention I was actually trying to google how many touchbacks it, by the way yeah <laughs> how many touchbacks they've had this year and, and all that but uh I can tell you this, they are two of four on field goal attempts on the season based on Virginia Tech's uh, stats here. So three games in, they've made two field goals and Stout has made two 50 plus yard field goals. Again, just to our Hokies listening out there, I know there are so many of you every week uh, just for, for the self, uh, self-loathing uh, aspect. There you go. And, and now, you can, now you can shut it off because we're done with Virginia Tech until, until next time. So there's some individual acknowledgement uh, for those guys, special teams, offense, defense. We'll do that after every game. Um, Sean, some, some game takeaways. Again, I would encourage all of our uh, listeners and readers out there to go check out your second look piece, 4,000 plus words, breaking things down, but let's get into some general, uh, you know, some general takeaways here. I think the, the quarterback play was kind of juxtaposed because neither guy turned the ball over, but Kenny Pickett looked like a guy who was comfortable despite facing pressure, uh, a guy who kept his eyes downfield and it, quite frankly, it just looked like a different quarterback than what we saw earlier in the season from him. And certainly what we saw last year for the majority of his sophomore year, including that matchup against Penn state where they really didn't let him try much, but he also didn't go out and make plays against Penn state over the course of that 2018 matchup without him in this game. It could have been a, it could have been a darn shutout. I mean, I don't know how it turns out, but and then on the other side, Sean Clifford, you were kind of looking for a higher comfort level game in, game out. We know the competition is different weekly, 
But Sean Clifford just never appeared settled back there. You got to give the pit defense some credit on that. They, they did a nice job of getting in his face, but um, really did struggled to set his feet. He, he struggled to, to kind of find his way moving through the pocket while keeping his eyes downfield. And when he did attack downfield, um, oftentimes it, it, it were just inaccurate passes or, or kind of passes where he was hoping someone can go fetch the ball. Uh, again, no turnovers from Sean Clifford, which remains a big number uh, for me looking at this offense uh, among the statistics through the first three games. Uh, but but really, it was kind of a role reversal of what I thought. I thought we'd see a very comfortable Sean Clifford settling in for a noon game, start three uh, of his career. And I thought we'd see Kenny Pickett kind of come in and, and be t- asked to carry Pitt and, and not be up to it. To Pickett's credit, he was. We'll see what he does next week and see if he can keep it going uh, or if this was kind of an aberration. Uh, give him credit, but also clearly we saw Sean Clifford. It's not going to be just a step forward, a step forward, a step forward. This is a learning curve. And and Sean said after the game, he was uh, ready to critique himself in ways he has not done yet as a quarterback during this bye week. Yeah, we've talked about Kenny Pickett enough. He did a phenomenal job, <laughs> um, not, not only passing, but getting out of the rush. And, you know, that sack number could have been higher. Um, but Sean Clifford w- was the story and was kind of, I hesitate to call it the difference in this game because Penn State won, but if you get better quarterback play from Sean Clifford, you win that game by a couple of touchdowns, missed a couple of the deep shots. Uh, I think the thing to take away from this game um, uh, after watching it a second time is his his read and progression is still not there, and that's something that I think can come as he gets more comfortable, can get a little bit more experience doing it, but I mean, he's a primary. He was a primary read guy all the way over the first three weeks of the season. Um, really, just uh, essentially, and, and the, the kind of the way I said it in my second look is Penn State's passing game is half the field right now. I mean, you're either looking at KJ Hamler and Jahan Dotson on one side, or you're going all the way to shorter, or or you're just playing the back coming out of the backfield. So his progression needs to be better. Um, that's something that you know, as he gets a better feel for the game, that will come along. As we kind of mentioned with his uh, decision making in the run game which you know, I think has been better over the last two games, uh, or I guess last six quarters, we'll say. Um, so I, I think he's coming along. He's doing some good things. But really, you know, you look at the offensive line, you look at the defense, and those were the sort of the easy uh, targets after the game to, to, to criticize and, 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 quite frankly, a little lazy uh, critical uh, analysis by us. But Clifford was really the difference in this being a, from being a seven-point game to being a two- or three-touchdown game missed some big shots, um, and, and that's something he's got to get better with. He acknowledged it after the game. It's going to be something where they have to take a look at it this week. He's not close to losing his job or anything remotely like that, but he's got to be better. And I think uh, for them to to namely get this win at Maryland, which is obviously, you know, they, they took a step back last week as well, but then that win or that game at Iowa is going to be tough as well. Sean Clifford's got to take that next step from, from being a guy that's trying to let everybody else do the thing to he, he's got to hit some of these throws. Yeah, six touchdowns in the first couple games, uh, none last week. And and 23% they're converting on third down, and that is obviously a startling number. We've talked about a lot uh, how they are set up on third down situations where it's going to be a Sean Clifford pass, and and there's not really much uh, unpredictable nature to it when it's third and seven, third and eight. Uh, And, and, you know, I I think as you look ahead here into the next point, inconsistent of involvement among this offensive group, which you, you talk about a supporting cast for a first year starting quarterback to, to, to step into the huddle with on paper. And, and for a few of these guys, they've proven it game in game out. Um, 
there is a, a really good group of, of players to throw the ball to. Jahan Dotson's done a nice job establishing himself now through what you know half dozen starts or more. KJ Hamler, clearly one of the more electric players in the Big Ten Conference. And then Pat Fryermuth is is up there with just about anybody in, in football at the tight end spot. Justin Shorter, you know, we're not sure what he's all about quite yet. Daniel George dealing with some things um, uh, medically. And, and I think right now, you know, you look at the offensive backfield and, and some of those guys can really contribute in the passing game. Yeah, if you're going to cut the field in half, you're selling yourself short and you're selling this offensive arsenal short. And, and as we said, the targets just really weren't there. Nine of them going to KJ Hamler. We know those guys uh, have a, have the uh, probably just more rapport because they've been on campus for three years together. But um, you know, the other players, I think Fryermuth had a couple targets. We didn't see much in the direction of Justin Shorter. It was a kind of back to earth game for Jahan Dotson in terms of production after a really strong performance against Buffalo. And, and, you know, but it was nice to see him utilize those running backs a little bit. Devin Ford caught a pass. Uh, we saw Ricky Slade bust one that set up the long field goal and, and Noah Kane caught a pass on the drive. He was in there. I think that's a promising sign to see. But yeah, you've got to be able to utilize this group because, as I said on the post-game podcast, they have just put together quite the stockpile that not a lot of teams can match and not a lot of quarterbacks are privy to. And, and you got to help Clifford out a little bit as well. You've got guys running the wrong routes. Um, there was a time in the end zone when you had K.J. Hamler basically being guarded by Pat Fryermuth, almost related, uh, almost uh, resulted in a pick. Uh, the third down play in the four-minute offense right before Penn State had to punt. Somebody ran a wrong route. I didn't see the uh, the whole field view, so it was either Dotson or Hamler, I'm guessing, um, but I uh, still don't know that for sure. Um, but uh, it's been an interesting sort of um, – experiment over the first couple of weeks because you've got guys you know sometimes that that first read is open I mean a couple of those out patterns to Jahan Dotson right off the bat it looked really good I thought Dotson I think Dotson's a heck of a player by the way um, but uh, it, you just there's a there's a mixed bag and, it, and if and if Sean Clifford's not going to be on which he was clearly not on Saturday those guys sort of got to pick up the, the the slack a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage and, and see what goes from there Justin Shorter you mentioned Justin Shorter I actually like what what I've seen from Justin Shorter I don't think they've been looking to him nearly enough and I think that goes back to you know the, the sort of the offensive alignment you've got Hamler and Dotson on one side and Shorter on the other and let's face it 14 of 28 or 29 targets have gone to Hamler and Dotson three to uh three to Shorter would have liked to see them get the ball to Pat Fryermuth a little bit more on first down, some of that short stuff. But, uh, you know, it's it, it's stuff that they're going to have to work out over the next couple of weeks. Um, I don't think it's uh, – I think a lot of it is correctable, and that's, uh, that's a positive sign when you're looking at it from that aspect of it. Clifford needs to be better. His guys need to help him out a little bit more. And he's just – he's. I mean, if he hits a couple of those deep shots, as we mentioned, this this offense is a big play offense. That's what they're predicated around. He's got to, you know, get the ball outside to Jahan Dotson down the, down the line. You can't overthrow KJ Hamler by four or five yards when he's got a step or two on Jason Pinnock. That, that to me, a very uh, key moment in that game where you could have gone up two touchdowns and instead you're, you know, you're sort of wobbling back to the huddle and you're going to have to punt two downs later. Yeah, that's a game where 24 to 10, really, you know, in the late third it's quarter over. or yeah. beyond. I mean, yeah, it's yeah, over. You get the that, that's a that. true two score game. You know, you yeah. would actually need two scores to get there. There um, but, it is. All yeah. right, nice. I've been waiting um, for that one. <laughs> again, the, the sack totals have not been there, I think, from from you know, the way this defense has been built up. And, and this is something that Franklin has spoken about a couple times. He wants to see uh, more of a consistent disruption caused by his defensive front. But I think one thing that you do take away from this game is, and, we, and this is not necessarily a surprise, Sean, but it just reconfirms it, that front seven has the depth 
to where they can roll in, you know, the second teamers at, at key positions. I think linebackers becoming one of them. Uh, you really can have that edge in terms of who's got the stamina late in the game and, and who's going to be able to put the game away. The offense or the defense, their defense was able to kind of drop the hammer there in the second half because they did have the ability to give some guys blows and, and, and not really take a step back uh, at key positions. That defense, specifically the front four, played much better than than you would think coming out of the game. Um, that You're right. The pressure was kind of there. The finish was not there. I, I wrote in the second look, they controlled the line of scrimmage, and they did. They, they The defensive tackles beat up Pitt's interior offensive line. They did a really nice job, and of course against the run, um, but they, they, they controlled the line of scrimmage, not the backfield. I mean, that's where they, that's where they kind of got away. You let Kenny Pickett sort of get a window. You didn't leave a pass rusher in front of him, which is something when they when they move Yutu uh, Gross Matos down into into a defensive tackle role to go after the passer. I mean, he's, he's going to go after the passer. And they're getting upfield too much, um, both the tackles and the ends. And all of a sudden, you've got a wide open window if you're Kenny Pickett. You can pull it down. You can run. You can uh, find that guy coming across the, the formation on the drag. Um, you got plenty of options there. So that's something that, that really... Yeah, I think you got to cage the quarterback a little bit more, and that's and if they would have done that against Kenny Pickett, I think they would have had a little bit more success. Defense as a whole, uh, at pretty good through three weeks, ten points per game, uh, kind of rate where you want to be. Um, maybe maybe a little bit better than that, but well, I mean you're kind of splitting hairs. But that second half defense was good. The goal line stand was good. The secondary right now, the safeties still aren't there, and I think that's the thing to take away from it. Um, the corners have been uh, really good at times, uh, fairly average at other times. Taysir Mack made a couple of really, really good plays against good coverage. Um, but uh, those safeties really, I think, are, are kind of the story so far. I think we're kind of the expectation of the defensive line would, would have been to have five sacks against Pitt. That obviously did not happen. They need to get a, a little bit better of a pass rush. They, they think they can go after teams with four pass rushers and then drop the, the back seven and have a lot of luck with that, but they haven't done that so far. When Penn State started to bring pressure from the second level, they really just kind of took the next step as a defense. So I think the Criticism of the defensive line, while they can get better, is a little overblown coming out of this game. I thought Tony played well. I thought the defensive tackle, Antonio Shelton, I thought played a really good game as well. Um, but uh, I think that that's kind of overblown at this point. You need you need a little bit more out of your safeties. You need your safeties to tackle better, uh, with the exception of Garrett Taylor's uh, goal line stop. Um, so uh, there's a lot to work on at every level. Um, but really, I think to, to to lump this on the defensive line and uh, while they can be better, is is uh, is a bit uh, a bit overkill, I would say. The last six quarters of this Pitt Penn State series, which you know may be the final stretch of the hundred games they've played together, uh, Penn State's defense did a tremendous job shutting down Pitt's rushing yards. And we 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 know that it's a different offensive play caller this year, but they're going to want to establish that run. Last year in the first half, two hundred and fourteen rushing yards. They were inside Penn State's thirty-five yard line four different times in the first half. Obviously, Penn State. Crushed them the rest of the way. Score was not the same here, but I, I believe now uh, it was fewer than 50 rushing yards in the past six quarters against Pitt after giving up 214 in that first half last September, which feels like forever ago. But I just thought that was kind of a remarkable stat as, as we kind of you know put, put, put the bow on this Penn State and Pitt deal. And again, Kenny Pitt played the game of his life, Sean. I don't know if he'll play a better game uh, during his career at Pitt and in this kind of situation and in an emotional situation as well for his team. Um, and they scored 10 points. So, uh, I, you know, 
tip of the cap to Narduzzi for, for contributing to that. But this was a Penn State defense that, that stepped up with its back against the wall on a few occasions, uh, particularly, obviously, uh, first and goal from the one-yard line, where uh, at that point, Pitt had just abandoned any, any semblance of trying to run the ball because of the track record over the course of the game. And for a team that you see and you, and you look across the field and you see sophomores and you see redshirt freshmen and, and you see those kind of guys stepping up and, and being a part of this team in, in crucial spots on defense, those are the moments that, you know, that starts to convince you that you got something brewing and confidence is such a huge part of what they want to accomplish defensively. They want to be kind of have that bully mentality and you can't be the bully in a game if you're not confident that and you don't have that kind of things to point to and say, we've, we've done it before. They're starting to develop their own track record, and I think that's going to pay off for them. A couple of things. I, I don't think Mark Whipple agreed with the call to, to kick the field goal at all. That's just based off of his success that he had in down in that similar down and distance. Made a fantastic call on that tight end pop pass on the play action there that, that, that just left Garrett Taylor frozen. And then uh, number two, the reason they kicked the field goal, Penn State's defensive line. Penn State's defensive line owned the line of scrimmage. Pitt wasn't sure that they could catch him off guard again. They knew they, were, they weren't going to be able to run the ball. Um, it's just a, a fantastic effort uh, for those guys up front. They just kind of owned the line of scrimmage and, and went from there. And like you mentioned, Pitt has run, I think, I think they'd averaged close to five and a half yards per carry throughout the series before this game. Uh, to get it under one for this final game is a pretty remarkable effort. I think we're going to take a break right now, come back with some non-conference thoughts as well as some recruiting, and we're going to bring the mailbag back. A uh, long, uh, long episode for your bye week, and stay tuned. So Penn State's non-conference schedule is in the books for 2019. Uh, if you're a little bit curious about what lies ahead in the future, Pitt's out of the equation now. Uh, put a story up on, thir- on Thursday morning up online 24-7, looking at every single scheduled out-of-conference matchup. I think it goes through 2027. They don't have all the slots filled, but they've got Big 12, ACC, SEC, a couple teams out of Pennsylvania, all on that future schedule. Um, but let's focus on the 2019 slate. Uh, it was home against Idaho, uh, home against Buffalo, and then obviously wrapping it up with Pittsburgh. Sean, we're going to look at, at some you know most improved on both sides of the football from this three-game sample size. We spent all offseason wondering who's going to take those steps forward. And for me on offense, the guy who popped out right away, and to his credit because he did miss significant time this summer due to a suspension, Journey Brown. He's a guy who came into training camp and got rave reviews from his team teammates and from Jay Wan Sider and Franklin um, early on about how he was approaching preseason camp. It has shown up on the football field. He leads this team in rushing yards right now. He was the first team uh, guy uh, against Pittsburgh after Ricky Slade was the first running back out there the first couple of games. And I think very clearly he looks like he belongs at this level. And, and I would expect him to continue to get better as he gains a feel for what it's like to, to get this kind of volume in a, you know, big 10 matchups. Impressed with Brown's bounce back, as you said. I think that that you know, being away from campus all summer, you weren't really quite sure what he would bring back based on you know his history. He's been a little uh, out of focus at times, but uh, he's come back around and done a really nice job. Still not ready to 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 anoint any of these backs as as the guy, but I think Journey has done a nice job establishing himself. Just needs to outrun his blockers and and just go with it instead of uh, trying to figure out and set things up when he's uh, 80 yards from where he started. So, um, but yeah, I would go with Journey. As one of those guys, uh, before the season, we talked X factors and who could be, you know, really set this team apart. And both of us picked Will Fries. I think Will Fries has done a really nice job so far. Like I said, he's playing his best football of his career, done a really nice job. Um, and I think you can you can lump Jahan Dotson in there as well. Um, I think he's more de- 
dependable. Uh, he's, he's the move the sticks guy, even though that's not really what this offense is, is centered around, but he's done a really nice job and he's gotten deep a couple of times. Uh, I think that, you know, if Clifford starts to hit those throws, Dotson's numbers can, can go way up because he can hurt you in several different ways. Yeah, if there was any question about you know his status with this passing game and the offense at large, I think Jahan Dotson has, has answered that bell through three weeks here. Uh, he got to the end zone for the first time, and, and he's been out there running a ton of routes. And uh, just quickly going back to, to Brown, he's averaging 8.3 yards uh, per carry. That 85-yarder he had on Saturday obviously is going to skew that in a positive direction, uh, but he's the only Penn State running back at this point averaging more than 40 rushing yards per game. He's at right around 58 yards a game. Uh, through three contests, and, and he's the only running back uh, of this group uh, who actually has crossed 20 rush attempts through three games, which is an eye-opening stat, and, and we'll get into that a little bit more as we talk about some non-conference storylines com- coming out of here. That's running back rotation is one of them. Defensively, Sean, uh, we've talked about him the, the last couple weeks and, and the way he's played at the linebacker spot. I think Cam Brown ha- has proven himself to be a guy who has improved um, and as reliable. He's come up with some splash plays as well, forced the fumble, recovered a fumble. That was a big play for him. And I think, you know, also in that in that front front seven, um, P.J. Mustfer and Shane Simmons, for different reasons, I think those guys have both looked better than they did in 2018. P.J. is a, an obvious making that second-year leap. And then Shane Simmons, as you wrote in your second look, uh, definitely looks like he's he's finding his footing again and no pun intended there i swear after you know being set back by some injuries in the past yeah he's been out what 18 months or so and and he's getting getting his feet underneath of him and and he's tentative at times but he's done a nice job when he's been in there he started to finish some plays you could see in the second half of the pit game getting a little bit more comfortable in there uh, i'd throw antonio shelton in there as well uh we, we all the talk was about robert windsor coming into the year and we came out of this last game or i came out of this last game thinking Shelton played really well and then the the, the prior game against Buffalo it was PJ Mustafer that played really well so still waiting a little bit uh, on Rob Windsor to come around but uh, I would say the defensive tackle uh play has probably been better than you think it would based off of the, the first three weeks of the season. So we'll throw Shelton in there. Cam Brown uh, still uh, still has a couple of plays. You know, he's hit and miss. He flails a little bit when he's tackling and um, he got caught up in the screen one time, but also he bounced back and made a really good play at the goal on the goal line stand to, to make Kenny Pickett get rid of the ball and then made a really nice play um, to, to rebound. I guess, I guess uh, right now, Penn State, anybody that makes a tackle on a screen is making a really nice play because Penn State's been awful against the screen game um, but he did a really nice job in the fourth quarter as they tried to try to sneak one by the the defense and he got on the right side took the right angle and, and took the guy down yeah I think more often than not that what you just said uh, seeing Cam Brown take the take the right line of pursuit um, I, I think sometimes that was lacking in 2018 uh, on more of a steady basis so far uh, I think that that's a better sign and, and better consistency in that regard um, in the defensive backfield a guy that you know I mentioned I, I anticipated was going to be an all big 10 performer this year I wasn't alone in that but to, to read Castro fields and what he's able to do not just in coverage um, he is one of the better open field tacklers at that cornerback position that I've seen in person. And he's been doing that on a consistent basis the last three years, really since he stepped on the scene as a freshman, but he's taken it to another level. And I think when you have the ability to shut down the perimeter like that from a tackling standpoint, there is a lot of teams lacking that um, at every level of the sport. Yeah, and uh, I'd also throw in that John Reed, outside of those penalties against the pit game, has done really well. 
and uh, Shaka Tony could be in this in this mix as well. I mean, I know that uh, it's kind of a jump from from game two to game three, um, but played extremely well against Pittsburgh. So there are guys that have have certainly improved, and you could see some visible improvement. We probably named too many if we're going to do with most improved, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go from there. Most improved freshman, uh, really not a ton of options here. The, the two running backs. Most mix, impressive because they've they got oh, nothing most, to improve well, from. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm, I, I'm reading, not my strong suit. Um, but uh, most impressive freshman, Noah Kane and Devin Ford. I think there's a little bit of recency bias here with the Noah Kane, and he did look really good against Pittsburgh. But I think Noah, uh, I think Devin Ford, still a spectacular back, uh, p- uh, potential to be a spectacular back. I liked what he did against Pittsburgh as well. Scored the touchdown, got out in the flat, and did some nice things. So uh, I as, as much as you would think that based off the Pittsburgh performance, we're going to go with Kane here. I think that one's still very much a toss up. Yeah. Those, and the, we've been kind of split on those guys and b- both, both very strong ways. I mean, I, not like I, I was thinking that anyone was not going to step up as a freshman. We've been saying throughout the summer and into the season that these guys weren't going to redshirt. They were going to be factors. And so far they fulfilled that. And I think you're right that either one of these players it could be a different conversation by the time we get into October, even, but certainly by the time we're getting towards Thanksgiving, very curious to see where they're, where this season takes them. And offensively, there's not a ton of options in terms of true freshmen. Those are too obvious on, on offense. Defensively, you haven't seen a ton of extensive work for a lot of these guys, some Keaton Ellis, but I'm going to go with Brandon Smith. I know it hasn't come, you know, in the first quarter of these games. Uh, some of it was, was late in contest, but he's gone out there and I think he's shown very quickly that he, he is comfortable and he is confident out there. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's always just something I wonder. And Brandon's demeanor, uh, you know, he's a soft-spoken kid and you just wonder what it's going to be like, you know, coming into a, a, a program with a hundred players and a bunch of them with big personalities. And I think he is, you know, getting to campus early was huge for him. Uh, and I think the physical stuff has always been there. I'm just impressed on, on kind of how he's playing loose and, and we heard from, I believe it was Cam Brown, he said, you know, when, when this kid is just going out there and playing football and not thinking, kind of what we heard about Micah Parsons a bit, he he may be uh, up there with just about any defender on this football program in terms of being able to make a play on any given on every given down. And I would expect we're going to see more of Brandon Smith as the season progresses, and uh, I guess that doesn't surprise me one bit. Yeah, uh, I think the the key takeaway that I have from Brandon Smith over three weeks, and a lot of that stuff, as you mentioned, was garbage time, and he, he, he delivered the big hit, which is kind of sometimes a little bit overblown when you're actually evaluating a guy. Um, but I, I think the, the most important thing is that they put him at the SAM last week and trusted him out there. Um, now granted, that was on a pit scoring drive, but they trusted him to switch positions, which says something about where he stands versus Lance Dixon, who plays the SAM exclusively. Um, but they, they, it shows they want to get him onto the field. They're not going to take Micah Parsons off to put him onto the field. Um, but that that's something. Keaton Ellis, I think, has done a nice job on uh, special teams. Uh, really hasn't been a ton of, uh, of, of opportunities for him on defense so far. Um, I think you can throw him into the mix here. But, yeah, those two guys, I guess, kind of head and shoulders. You haven't seen a ton of Adisa Isaac. You know, Lance Dixon's been a special teams guy. Um, but uh, I, I just think that those two have really set themselves apart from the rest of their class so far. Micah did actually acknowledge the fact that, that Smith did show his versatility playing the Sam after the game last week. He said that was a really strong sign for a player who is this early in his college career. And as we said, Brandon Smith has the physical measurables where you can really work a lot of different systems around this kid. His high school coaching staff had fun with that. And I know Penn State staff 
they're, they're certainly looking at different avenues to get him on the football field. And, and two guys that were considered five-star prospects coming out of high school, when you look at the 24-7 sports evaluation, Brandon Smith, Lance Dixon, certainly fair to say year number one, Brandon Smith has the upper hand on, on making an impact defensively. Uh, Lance Dixon will be key on special teams. Top newcomer in general, Sean. I mean, all due respect to these young running backs that we like a lot. Uh, these young defenders that have uh, you know major potential in year one. Jordan Stout is hands down the the biggest free agent pickup. I think anybody putting together lists uh, through non-conference play across the country about transfers who are making an impact, he's the guy who's going to be absent on a lot of those lists because Folks won't be looking towards the kicker position and special teams position, but this could not have worked out better for Penn State. And we we talked him up a lot during the offseason and what we thought he could accomplish and, and what we thought he could boost for this special teams. He's exceeded that, and his ability now as a long-range field goal kicker, a completely new weapon for this program. And, and again, he's going to be able to neutralize those, those return threats. Maurice French was not a guy that we talked about much in the last game, and, and he was a reason why. We actually going to spend time on this one? No. Next uh, next segment. All right. Turning our attention towards storylines coming out of these first three games. Believe it or not, a quarter of the 2019 Penn State regular season is already over. Uh, Big Ten play starts uh, next Friday against Maryland. So there are still pl- plenty of questions to answer. Spent a lot of time talking about Clifford. Inexperience didn't really cost Penn State a ton, but he has room to grow in terms of exposing defenses, helping put games away, utilizing that arsenal around him. The big thing I think a lot of people are are asking us about or just talking about in general are the rotations we've seen through two weeks, notably at running back, defensive line. You've seen three guards involved. You've seen four safeties involved. But I think running back is the one that has become the hot-button issue because it, it feels scripted. They want to get these guys touches. They have a system in place that they establish going into games on Saturday. And so when you see Noah Kane go in there and, and have that performance on one possession and then spend the rest of the game on the sideline, that leads people to say, what is this coaching staff doing? What is their approach? And Sean, based on Wednesday's comments from James Franklin, he says things remain the same. They want to see somebody or or a couple guys separate themselves. Until then, it's going to be all four guys. He basically just parroted what he told me last week when he was asked again about it uh, yesterday. But let's face it, if, if they are going to change things up and say throw 80% of the workload to two guys, uh, Maryland's going to find out on the field before we find out on, on the practice field, uh, you know, 10 days in advance. Yeah, I think so. And, and, and the, the, the rotations were scaled back a little bit this week uh, at certain positions, of course, running, running back kind of excluded from there. Uh, I think that's kind of the, the criticism that's, that's warranted in terms of you're going to talk about having the hot hand at running back and then all of a sudden Noah King goes and sort of takes you down the field by himself and then you know, all of a sudden he disappears. So um, I think that that's, uh, that's one way to look at it. I, I don't think they showed a ton during the non-conference in terms of, uh, you know, what they were trying to do. I think they were trying to uh, get Clifford in a situation that makes him comfortable. And, and going back to your first point, uh, you know, he, he does have a lot to work on. He does have steps to take to, to take this offense where it can go. So um, if you look position by position, running back, I think you try, you try and scale that back a little bit. The defensive line, I think that's that's worked to an extent to keep those guys fresh. Uh, guard. I, honestly, I think that they've gotten a little bit more out of C.J. Thorpe and Mike Miranda than they've gotten out of uh, Steven Gonzalez, so I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit more rotation from that aspect, but I do I do like that the way that the interior line has started to develop a little bit more. You saw last uh, the last game against Pitt, um, more successful on the combo block, getting Mike Mennett out to uh, Michael Mennett out to the, the second level, especially on the touchdown for Noah Kane. 
Um, and safety, uh, there's just so much room for growth at safety. It's Garrett Taylor and everybody else right now. Lamont Wade has been uh, not in spots where he's needed to be, and it's tackling has left something to be desired. Jaquan Brisker, you can tell, is, is, is certainly learning on the job out there. Jonathan Sutherland's been all right, but it really hasn't been a splash guy at all. So I think it's Taylor and everybody else. So that I think you're going to have to keep rotating in, not like that defensive line where you're rotating in and, and getting production out of a bunch of those guys, but because you need to find a, a second guy that you're comfortable with rather than you know your top four. At one spot where we haven't seen a, a ton of rotating in, in the last few weeks, it's been very consistently, um, you know, Jahan Dotson, KJ Hamler, uh, Justin Shorter has been out there for, for extended periods. Buffalo, we saw almost no wide receivers. That that expanded a bit last week to Cam Sullivan Brown, Mac Hippenhammer, Dantia Senna. Um, but I think what have the wide receivers really shown us so far, Sean? It, it was, you know, one of the main storylines of the offseason. New coaching staff, uh, young players making the leap, some veterans left via transfer. Obviously, KJ Hamler and Jahan Dotson have gone out. They've shone in spots. As you said, I think Justin Shorter needs needs to be served up more opportunities to win some of these one on one matchups because I think he he's had an advantage. You know, we, he's always going to have an advantage physically, but I think a big thing is you know give him the chance to, to go and win those one on one matchups along the sideline. There's there's times where I've seen him uh, you know not get looked at. Sean Clifford, as you said, that's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, and you look at the stats right now: six catches for seventy four yards for Shorter through three games, not going to inspire a lot of people. But but I think he has. Looked like he belongs in the football field. I'd love to see him uh, be more involved there. I think beyond those three, though, we'll see where things are with Daniel George moving ahead and his availability. Uh, but but I think you need to start to see some depth built at wide receiver. Guys are going to go out there and produce. Uh, haven't really seen Hippenhammer or, or Sullivan Brown you know, make that step from in their third years quite yet. Again, we haven't really seen them get a lot of opportunities to do that either. I'd like what we saw from Weston Carr in, in some limited opportunities and it's a little bit on the football field. Dan Chisena, you know, the tip of the football doesn't hit the turf. We're talking about his big catch uh, last week against Pitt, but but that was wiped off the scoreboard. So I think in terms of receivers, we still have a lot of questions how this is going to work out because, uh, you know, you're going to be able to, to need to get, you know, a, a, a three guys out there. You're not going to be able to, to play K.J. Handler, Jahan Dotson, uh, you know, 95% of the snaps. I know you'd love to, but, you know, I think Parker's still working, feeling through that room and, and trying to figure out, who we trust. And I think it also goes to the fact that, that Clifford's doing the same kind of thing with this unit. And uh, it, it's still a spot where I'm very curious to see where the next few games take it. Yeah. And I think that uh, the number of plays that they've run has, has had something to do with that as well. I mean, you, you talked about last week against Buffalo where they only played four receivers. I mean, they, they didn't have an opportunity to play a ton of guys. So um, yeah, I mean, you're going to, you're, you're still going to see that base, uh, the, the 11 personnel where you're working with Jahan Dotson and, and KJ Hamler on one side, Justin Schroeder on the other, and that's going to be the base package. And I, and I don't see a reason to go. I mean, Matt Kippenhammer has, has not shown anything when he's been in there. Cam Sullivan Brown has done very little. Of course, Daniel George is hurt right now. Weston Carr, uh, you know, had a decent start to his career with those three catches against Idaho, but we haven't seen him since. So that's sort of uh, a mystery right there. Um, but yeah, I think uh, expect more of the same. Expect those three guys to dominate stats and uh, excuse me, snaps, and and we'll see where they go statistics wise. Um, do think we, you know, a lot of that reflects on the quarterback, and a lot of it reflects on you know whether you can, you know, because these guys, there there have been guys that have been open. I mean, they're the, the these are the secondary, the third reads that have been open, and that's unfortunately not something that Sean Clifford has gotten around to yet. So I think a lot of it goes back on the quarterback play, um, and and, and we'll kind of have to watch where it goes 
goes from there because I expect it to be, you know, not a not a vast rotation like we may have thought coming into the season. Hippenhammer was someone who had a bunch of buzz during summer camp, and that wasn't really on our part. That's what we were hearing from the staff, and uh, he was very involved on the two deep uh, on the practice field after, despite missing spring for baseball. But uh, to this point, he has not shown up on the stat sheet with a single reception, and, and I think probably his most notable thing that people have seen from him this year was the couple botched punt recover, uh, punt uh, tries uh, in the first week. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see there, but Matt Kippenhammer is the guy that you thought maybe would be, that would reflect early in the season, a strong camp uh, so far, not the case. Um, one other thing here, I think you probably would have liked to have gotten Will Levis some more opportunities in the first, first few games. Obviously he got almost an entire half against Idaho. He took some shots, uh, that, that Franklin was not thrilled about him taking, but you know, he got his feet wet at the college level. Uh, Buffalo game was competitive, uh, further along than a lot of people thought it would be. You had Sean Clifford throwing passes, you know, deep into the fourth quarter in that game, the way it turned out and the way they decided to approach it. And then last week, uh, it was not a 51 to six game. You know, last year we saw Sean Clifford make his college debut in the second half against Pitt when that game got out of hand. You weren't taking Clifford out of this one. So I, I think if, if the blueprint had gone according to plan, which it rarely does, Will Levis would have been more involved and probably would have had a better groove within this group as the number two quarterback. Yeah, it goes back to, to where they're at in the game. And I think where they found themselves in the last two games um, is sort of reflected in, in, in how how it was coached. I think they expected bigger leads in both games, let's be frank. And, and I'm not sure how, how they got there, but it just didn't happen. But what, what's interesting to me and moving on, you know, Levis is what it is, his backup quarterback. You'd love to get him more snaps. He didn't get more snaps. You, you deal with it. It happens every year. Um, but uh, what, what what I look at is the overall game plan and how Penn State's been beat up front and they haven't been beaten around up front but you know the pressure from Pitt this week and, and Buffalo doing a nice job of, of neutralizing the pass Penn State's numbers game has been fairly terrible so far this year and the, and that's and what I'm saying there is you know Penn State leaving five guys in the block six or you know they've just been outnumbered on both sides of the ball Buffalo did a great job leaving a back end chipping with a tight end doing all that kind of stuff and Penn State really hasn't accounted for that uh, especially early in the game. So I think their numbers game is kind of putting them behind. It's making them uh, coach a closer ball game than, than it should be. And I, uh, again, I think this pit game could have been a two, maybe three touchdown game. Um, but uh, opposing coaches have, have, thrown waves at the the front five of Penn State's offense you know they, they've thrown waves at Penn State's offensive line and they've also kept guys in to keep that defensive line at bay and they've really been effective in doing it and I think that you look at James Franklin's comments after the in the post games the last two weeks is they came in with a plan they did what they had to do and they were successful with that plan well that plan isn't really uh, schematically crazy I mean it's just throwing numbers at a group that uh, you know hasn't handled numbers well yeah, and, and that that's obviously not something that fans want to hear. And, and the hearing that the opposing coaching staff was able to execute and get done what they wanted to get done a couple of games back to back. Again, some of the numbers that stand out: twenty three percent third down conversion. That's down from thirty seven percent over the course of twenty eighteen. Uh, time of possession is is down by more than two minutes from last year. Twenty seven forty uh, last year down to twenty five twenty two. Time of possession hasn't really been a a, a stat that Penn State's going to keep in their back pocket and point to as uh, as something they try to accomplish. And winning that battle, and that's dating back to when they had Barkley and McSorley. Um, but the, the, those those are the numbers right now. Good numbers, though. Uh, they are 12 of 12 scoring in the red zone, Sean. Nine of those are touchdowns. Um, and additionally, special teams play. Uh, five of five combined on field goals. Stout with the two beyond 50. 
18 of 18 on extra points. And then Blake Gillikin, nine of his 13 punts so far have landed inside the 20. So again, the return game, we're still waiting to see that develop and materialize with, with, with the talent that they put back there with KJ Hamler particularly. Uh, but in terms of these kickers, and there's three of them involved, uh, they're getting the job done at a high rate. Yeah, and that's a big step up from last year. I don't think there's any doubt about it. So, um, I mean, you have to be pleased with what Joe Lorig and his staff have been able to do. Um, that focus on special teams has obviously helped Blake Gillikin. And and we're not talk- I don't know that we're talking enough about Jake Pinnaker. He's done exactly what they've asked of him so far. He's the 49 and in guy. Um, he's three for three on field goals, hasn't missed an extra point. And that can be a tough situation when you see a guy like Jordan Stout kind of take the world by storm and, and do some really nice things right as soon as he gets here. To see that can be tough to handle, but both of those kickers have done a really nice job in handling so far. Definitely, and both of those kickers are in sophomore year of eligibility. So Penn State's got a pretty good thing brewing in their special teams right uh, room right now if they can keep it going. Um, speaking of a good thing brewing, Penn State, a couple commitments since we last uh, covered recruiting on this podcast, Sean. Uh, the Ibrahim Traore commitment feels like a while ago. We'll get to that in a second, but more recent, uh, Zariah Fisher uh, committing earlier this week, a guy who was set to commit in early August. The Michigan State appeared to maybe have a momentum on its side there. He held off. He made his official visit to, to Happy Valley this past weekend, attended the game, and saw enough that he was ready to dive into this recruiting class. And he's a guy that plays linebacker. He's kind of all over the football field for his high school squad. But uh, I think we're projecting him to, to move up off the edge on the defensive front. Yeah, it's going to depend on how his body reacts over the next couple of years. Uh, he's a high school linebacker, but he's also pushing 6'3", 250. So he's a Bama inside linebacker, if anything, as a, as a linebacker. Um, so he could be a defensive end. He's just, a, you know, you, you fall back on the cliches. He's a heck of a football player. I mean, you put on the tape and he's chasing guys down and he's finding the football and doing everything he needs to do. He really, um, you know, it's interesting that Penn State beat out Michigan State for him. Really seems like the type that Michigan State has had a lot of success with is, an, uh, you know, a 6'3 edge rusher that's been able to get to, get to the quarterback. And, you know, this is is the one that uh, kind of played out exactly how we thought it may once he delayed that uh, that decision in early August, which I'm fairly confident was going to be Michigan State. He was playing that uh, Michigan State official visit against Penn State's unofficial visit. Penn State convinced him to come to an official visit. That's a tough sell for a kid from Aliquippa. Penn State hasn't uh, signed a, a guy out of Aliquippa since the mid-80s and Marcus Henderson. But, uh, yeah, they got him on campus for an official visit. And what do you know? It stacked up and, and exceeded what he saw in East Lansing. Uh, I think he was pretty happy with uh, with the team's plan for him. I think he's going to start at linebacker and eventually move down um, to see what, uh, see what kind of attacking role he can play. Maybe a similar uh, situation to Micah Parsons. Obviously, he's not on the talent level that Micah Parsons is. But Zariah Fisher is a heck of a player. He keeps improving. Uh, I talked to Brian Doan the other day. Brian put on his senior tape. He's like, man, where, where was this kid last year? And we've got him rated as a as a mid-three-star prospect on 24-7 sports. I can see that climbing just based off of the improvement that he's made, um, the, the instincts that show up on tape. He's just a really good football player. I think a really good pickup uh, for Penn State as they try to add, you know, maybe not numbers to this defense, but quality across the board at this defense. Yeah, speaking of, uh, of, of climbing in the rankings, Tyler Elsden, linebacker uh, commit, jumped the four-star status based on the 247 sports evaluation. Uh, I think that came last Friday. So uh, Tyler off to a strong start for his senior year um, at North Schuylkill High School. And Tyler just really hit quick, up. He, had, he had 13 tackles in week one. Week three, he had 20 tackles. So he's doing a little bit of producing up there. 
Yeah, no kidding. Um, a quick look at the at the list of Pennsylvania prospects in the 2020 class, and, and we've spoken about this for going on a year now, Sean. Um, just not a ton of scholarship offers out there uh, for Penn State, especially when you look beyond the, the top group here. Uh, the top 17 players in, in composite rankings for, for Pennsylvania are now committed, and that, that's pretty wild. Four of the top 10 committed to Penn State, uh, Tyler Elsden, uh, linebacker Nick Dawkins, an offensive lineman, Fatorma Mulba, defensive tackle, and now Zariah Fisher. And, and when you look across the board, barring any kind of flips, um, you know, it, it looks like this may be kind of putting putting the end, uh, putting the punctuation mark on, on what Penn State's going to accomplish with scholarships in Pennsylvania. Yeah, I think so. Unless they, you know, might have a chance to flip a guy late, which, you know, it's coaching change season always happens. So you'll see what happens. And maybe a, a late riser pops up like, uh, you know, Journey Brown did a couple of years ago. But, you know, for the most part, I think this is what that that, that Pennsylvania class is going to look like uh, come December. Yeah. And uh, so moving ahead with re- recruiting, well, actually moving backwards, Ibrahim Traore announced his commitment on Friday. Um, and he's a player that we circled as a priority. This team needed to add an offensive tackle. He certainly physically fits that part. Um, the considered, you know, the premier talent out of New York City, where it, it, it's always interesting to see players surface in New York City. It is uh, a, a, not the easiest environment to develop as a football player. And, and he found a way. And we spoke before uh, it, back in late July, how we found a way to get to campus, got on a bus and uh, journeyed all the way to State College and, and knew what was at stake and, and knew it was his shot to earn a scholarship. And I can tell you firsthand, being a few yards away, he earned it that day. And um, obviously with his performance on the field uh, during his high school career, he, he's established that. But this was a chance for him. And Nick Dawkins did a nice job detailing it with us when he joined the podcast about Triori showing up that day getting as much reps as he could. He was, in fact, oftentimes ahead of Nick Dawkins in the line. He was very urgent. He had that sense of urgency towards the end of camp. We saw them loading up, load him up with reps. I think he got five or six in a row against a variety of different uh, athletes coming off, coming at him, and he handled it well with Lime Grover there and, and, uh, and James Franklin there just a few yards away. Again, this kid knew what was at stake. He got the offer, stuck around for Lash Bash. We thought maybe a commitment would come earlier. We both put, we both kind of raced to the crystal ball once he got that offer. Um, and then once the season started, maybe we thought it would go to the end of the season. Instead, he's he's ready to roll, and I th- I'm sure Penn State is happy to add him at this point. The second offensive lineman to join the class in September, along with Devin Willock. Yeah, Willock and Traore are interesting. I mean, big bodies. Obviously, Devin Willock, a bigger body than than most. Um, but they they've looked pretty good so far in their senior years. Uh, they're, they're both tackles, which you know we've talked about the importance of actually recruiting tackles instead of recruiting guards and putting them at tackle. Um, so they, they've done a nice job with uh, with some guys in the regions that they've been watching for a while. That they you know they got Traore in camp. They wanted to see Willock you know, start his high school, you know, start his senior season before they, they sort of pushed on him and moved on him. Um, so, you know, that's a good, good start. They need tackles. That's obviously a, a spot where they, you know, look to where they can't have enough, really. I mean, I think that's the, you know, they're still going to pursue offensive linemen down the stretch because they, they can't get enough tackles. So I think uh, quality pickup in Traority, a really good pickup in Zariah Fisher and sort of, uh, you know, go on to this bye week where you get out and see, you know, Keandre Lambert or Theo Johnson it's just some of these big names left on the board because you still have a couple of months left to close on the, on this class yeah and and at the tackle position just a quick note we, we've mentioned in the past how Anthony Wigan who by the way seems destined for a red shirt here coming off the junior college level he has three years to play to a Penn State 
did see him getting some work again at the tackle spot uh, when the non-travel uh, team was involved in a scrimmage on the practice field. So he's a guy that maybe still is long-term in the mix at tackle, though also guard is obviously on the table for him. Speaking of tackles, one of the best in the country can be found at Warwick High School in Lidditz, uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, Nolan Rucci, a Nittany Lions legacy, a five-star prospect, Sean. You got a chance to catch up with him after his latest visit. He was in Beaver Stadium, all six foot eight, 265 pounds of this high school junior uh, for the pit game. Yeah, Nolan Rucci, uh, very positive about Penn State, as you would expect. His father, Todd, played for the Nittany Lions. Um, but uh, it's, uh, I, I, I also should mention his mother played field hockey for Penn State. Um, but it was up for the entire weekend. Uh, another great visit. I mean, it's right now, uh, you know, you have to feel good if you're Penn State. He's obviously going to check out some other schools. Uh, I think one thing to take away when I talked to him the other night, I asked him about other visits. And he just said, you know, there's really not a place that he has a burning desire to get to this year, which I thought was very interesting considering he's been to Penn State. He's talking about coming back for potentially the whiteout if it fits his schedule or potentially another game. Um, Obviously, his brother at Wisconsin is something to take into account, but um, really just not. uh, I mean, I I wouldn't call him a a lock by any stretch of the imagination or even a a very strong lean, um, but he knows so much about Penn State. There are so many connections there, aside from his father being a, a former uh, you know, offensive lineman at Penn State, uh, that that I really think that Penn State is in a great spot uh, heading into the the fall of his uh, junior season, and they've also you know trying to set the table with that 2021 line class. Uh, Steve Wilfong put in a crystal ball this week for Landon Tangwall out of Good Counsel, and that's a guy that I've had a crystal ball pick in for Penn State for a while. It looked like Notre Dame actually Notre Dame did take the lead for a while. Um, and then all of a sudden it comes back around. He's got a top three of Penn State, Notre Dame, and and Michigan. Steve th- seems to think Penn State has regained that momentum. Tyler Bowen, I think, has done a phenomenal job. And I think a key thing to look at here with Tangwall, he's been on the radar so long, and I think he's been on the radar since eighth grade for us, since he came to team camp uh, with uh, Pilati a couple of years ago. But he's been on the radar so long, I think he's over-recruiting. I think he's done uh, you know, coaches are blowing up his phones. He's getting tired of it. And that can be a good thing if, you know, if, if you're in Penn State's position right now, which is probably the leader, that can be a good thing for you. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch over the last few years with all these kids getting offers as freshmen now and just in just the volumes that we have never seen, say, even 10, 15 years ago. There is a little bit there's a much higher burnout rate in, in terms of, hey, I'm just I want to commit and be done. And, and these guys, these kids like Landon Tengwall, you talk with him and he, he comes across as like a 20 year old because he's been involved with the recruiting process. 19 months ago, he picked up a Nittany Lions offer halfway through his freshman year. He was their first 2021 offensive line target. This is a kid who was playing wide receiver uh, late in his middle school career. He had one of those unreal growth spurts that you're going to hear about uh, Landon Tengwall for the rest of his career when people talk about his background they're going to talk about how this kid put on you know 100 pounds and 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 six seven inches in a matter of i think two or three years um a completely different athlete but yeah i think if you're talking about dream scenario for penn state you can develop uh, an offensive tackle tandem in your 2021 class with tangwall and rucci that speaks volumes and and i don't know uh inside rucci's personality you've spoken with him a few times but I've, I've really gotten to to get a feel for Landon Tengwall in the past couple of years, chatting with him in person a few times as well. He comes across to me as a guy who's going to be a class leader. Whoever gets him on a commitment, he's going to be at the forefront of trying to get other top players on board. And when you're you know a top 40 prospect or whatever he is, and I think at the end of the day, he's a five-star talent. Um, you know, you, you're, you're gonna, you can pull more ears towards your way when you have that kind of clout 
And I, so I think that this is more than just adding a player. I think you'd be adding a, a built-in class leader. Not sure when he wants to decide, but it's very clearly these are the three teams he wants to explore. And he did his homework. He went down to Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, found out what he liked, found out what he didn't like. And here is, you know, the, the dust starting to settle. Penn State's right there. And 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 when I see still Steve Wiltfong put a crystal ball pick in, I always tell you my ears perk up. And I think that should be the case for Penn State fans as well. Yeah, Steve called me the other morning. He said, Fitzy, I think you were right on Tangwall. And I was like, I, I don't even remember what I have in. So <laughs> that and, and that goes back to he's just been on the on the radar for so long. How, how many of these guys that are like 20, 20, 20, 21 guys that you think are probably already freshmen or sophomores in college? It's just it's like, man, you're still you're still out there. That's good for you. I um, did my I did my first interview with Tate Martell when he was in eighth grade. He was committed to Washington. By the time I did my last interview with him, coming off of a championship game at Bishop Gorman, I, it really felt like he was like supposed to be a junior in college. And now he's a junior in college now, and his odyssey continues. But he's probably the, the paramount guy I would point to as as a guy who had probably two years too much of recruiting, and, and, it, and it went kind of in a negative way and, and it spiraled a little bit. But you know, I think some guys, ultimately, they're just like, let me... Uh, let me just like stop blowing my phone up. No, I don't want to come back to your campus. Yes, I know I'm only a junior. Uh, at least they get what an extra two months uh, ahead of time where they can sign now rather than having to wait till February. Uh, so that, that cuts down a little bit, but you're going to look at a process where this is a kid who gets offered in, in February of 2017, 2018 by Penn State, and and he's not eligible to sign for you know almost three full years. So. Uh, it, it is a very long process. A couple notes here. You mentioned Keandre Lambert, a uh, guy who's still on that radar. He's been dominating. He had a four-touchdown game. Uh, but but in the recruiting class, Penn State guys you're going to see on campus next year, Keziah Holmes, a four-touchdown game in his most recent outing with Coco High School. I uh, have a write-up on that on lines 24-7 with some highlights as well. That included 200-plus rushing yards. He's a guy that also is contributing as expected as a receiver. That speed is very apparent on the football field for him. And then Parker Washington, someone that I, I know Steve Wiltfong has pointed to as kind of a under-the-radar gem in the receiver class nationally. But within this Penn State class, I think people are starting to realize how important of a piece he is. Last year, he went for 1,400-plus yards uh, of receiving 20-plus touchdowns down in Texas. Uh, Fort Ben Travis, he helped lead them to a come-from-behind win. They were down 18 points in the fourth quarter, Sean. Another huge game for him uh, this past weekend. A couple touchdowns. The last two games combined, I think he's at 310 receiving yards, four touchdown catches, and and uh, you know he is just the guy that really pops on the tape. And, and clearly, we're talking about some some pretty high level high school football that he's involved in. Yeah, uh, Washington obviously had that big one handed catch that we highlighted. Because um, I Holmes is another guy with a big uh, big season so far. He had four touchdowns. I think on Friday night or Saturday, whatever the weekend game was. Four touchdowns there. I mentioned De- uh, Devin Willick a little bit earlier this uh, this show. He's doing some good things as a senior. Tyler Ellison's putting up some big numbers. Just got the bump from twenty four seven Sports. Um, so a lot of uh, a lot to like so far among uh, Penn State's twenty twenty class. All right, we want to jump into the mailbag. Yep, we can jump into the mailbag. <laughs> Let's venture into it. Uh, put the word out on Twitter uh, that we were opening up the mailbag for this episode. We, we uh, thought we'd be questions. short. We thought we'd be short on time, and now that we're <laughs> yeah. now in 15 minutes in, you know, we're a little off on that one. Yeah, now that we're at the 72 minute mark, uh, let's 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 address the mailbag. Sean, uh, handpick these out of there, and, and we'll start off with a, a couple wide receivers. Um, do we see John Dunmore or T.J. Jones this season? 
Sean, I will defer to you here. Again, these are these are the two freshmen out of uh, Florida high school programs. So I picked this one out. I think it was more of an overarching uh, thing, more than just Dunmore and TJ Jones. The strategy this year to save those games for the end of the year, that's another way of saying, hey, we're going to play them against Rutgers. Um, so it's, it's oh man, I'm sorry. I just saw your head drop. Um, but no, I think it's, I, I don't think we see Dunmore or Jones in a capacity where you see them on the field taking snaps away from someone else. We talked about Hip and Hammer and and uh, Cam Sullivan-Brown about how they need to improve. But I don't see these guys up there yet. They're scout team guys. Um, we might see them on the field very late in the season. Uh, bowl practices will be big for them, but I don't see them break into the rotation right now. Yeah, I don't see the need for it at this point. I don't know if if, if they are must plays right now either, based on what we've seen in, in just a, a few glimpses on the practice field. And hey, good, good, good scout team wide receivers to have, but... Uh, but with the redshirt rule, I think you're, you're going to try to find a way. And, and yeah, point to that Rutgers game, maybe point to that Indiana game later in the season as well. There may be opportunities there. But as we said, game flow doesn't always go the way you plan. And, and you know, a game like Buffalo may have been an opportunity to, to, to get more true freshmen involved. That didn't happen either. But you got those four games to play with it. Try to maximize the situation. And you, and uh, you had no. you had guys like, you know, like Salim Wormley came in against Idaho. I mean, you weren't mm-hmm. planning on playing him until late in the year. Um, I still, th- I mean, Caden Wallace has played on the kick team, so he's going to play. Adisa Joey Isaac. Porter, we've yeah, seen a little yeah, bit. Yeah, we've seen some of Adisa Isaac, and I don't expect him to redshirt. But guys, guys like Porter and and Daquan Hardy and and Devon Ellis, and I think that defensive line is probably the group that you'll see maybe mix and match. They played Smith Vilbert a little bit late against Buffalo. Um, but it, you've got games to save them at the end. And I think that's really how it's going to turn out for those guys. Um, we're curious to see if we see like Joseph Darkwa out there or something like that. Um, Marquise Wilson's another guy that, you know, you could probably save those games for, and he could probably end up, you know, at the end of the day playing in three games this year. And you you probably didn't notice him much, but you know, any, and I think any sort of uh, opportunity for playing time is going to have to come later in the year for those guys. Next question, uh, regarding something we saw in the pit game, and we were wondering if we'd see this, but two running backs on the field at the same time, uh, Sean Clifford, uh, it, just on one particular possession, I think it was in the third quarter, I, I think it was actually right after the Noah Kane possession uh, where Kane scored and they took the lead, you saw Journey Brown and Ricky Slade sharing the backfield to either side of, of Sean Clifford. Didn't see, you know, those guys moving elsewhere. That they were, they were kind of, you know, there wasn't a lot of motion involved there. You didn't see Ricky Slade run out to the slot. Uh, but we saw them both on the field at the same time, and, and this question is, is that something that you know, we can expect to see considering the talent level and the depth at running back? I don't think we see a ton of it, but we'll see it again. It was something that they came into the game sort of scripting to find a spot to do it, and they did it, and I thought they did it well. I thought I, I liked what I saw out of that. It gives you a, a completely different look if you're a defense and really uh, forces you to, to to realize if you want to put more guys in the box or you have to spread around, and, and they're sending Journey and Ricky, in this, in this case, to the sideline uh, for a swing pass. It's going to open up some things, get the linebackers moving around. I, I really like what they did. They, they missed taking a deep shot um, on, on this particular series, which was big. Um, but the, I don't think that the the two, just because it didn't result in points, I don't think the two running back uh, formation was a failure. I would expect to see it going forward. And and the fact that they went to it after their touchdown drive that, that Kane came in and did a really nice job in, the fact they went to it right away tells me that that's something they've been wanting to do for a little while. 
Yeah, it must have been a point of emphasis. And and I think when when we don't we didn't see a lot schematically compared to what we're gonna see the next nine games. I don't think they held back much against Pitt, but th- they've got wrinkles to show us yet that, that they probably are very excited about. They're trying to iron out. And I th- I think when you look at this group, I mean, it does make a lot of sense to, to incorporate them as best you can. And I mentioned this on the post-game podcast. Uh, you say a lot in the recruiting trail. You, you, you offer a lot of sales pitches and, and visions for the future. But I can tell you, at least three of these four guys involved told me when they were recruits that they were that, that the anticipation was there was going to be a chance to spend time on the field together by design. And, and so, you know, look, reality is what it is when you get to campus and, and maybe things aren't feasible. Maybe things just don't come to fruition. But I, I do think Penn State, if they're not at least exploring those possibilities, then they're probably shortchanging themselves in terms of what they have at talent. And I do wonder, particularly with Ricky Slade, because I think out of these four, he is the best receiver. Um, I do wonder if, if you get to a point where you maybe do consider you know a little Ricky Slade out of the slot um you know we, we said it before we haven't seen a lot of depth out of this receiver group we don't know what's going to happen really on the two deep moving ahead Mac and hip Mac and Hippenhammer has not surfaced the way we thought he might just something to think about I, I know that that may be uh difficult to adjust on the fly and maybe it's not even on their radar at all but I, I you know if you're going to incorporate somebody I, I think you know why not lean on those receiving skills and, and, and you know, I, just something that comes to mind for me. And I think Ricky Slade is the one who stands out. He has been the least effective rusher, but I, I, I do believe right now where each of their careers are, he is the, 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 the most high potential receiver out of the bunch. Yeah. And you can move him around. There was another question in the mailbag about uh, getting Ricky into the slot. And I think that's something you could do out of this formation more than anything. I don't think you're just going to come out and see him line up uh, cold Turkey as a slot receiver. Um, but yeah, you, you can get him an opportunity to get in the open field and do some things. Uh, just missed a big one, a really nice play by uh, Jazzy Stocker out of Coatesville um, in, in the open field on Slade this week. Slade, and we're going to sort of get into our next uh, question here because it's about the running back by committee. Um, Slade probably wasn't as bad as you thought he was. I know he missed uh, missed a couple of blocks and, and really the, the pass protection from the running backs was not very good across the board. Um, probably Journey Brown's number one, but that's not, uh, you know, that's not the, uh, it's not the be all end all rankings or anything like that. But I thought Slade did a really nice job on that drive before the field goal drive before the half had that really nice route, which I think he beats the guy, even if he doesn't slip, um, had an, a couple of nice blitz pickups there. He caught the ball out of the backfield, had a tough run on, on fourth and one. So that one would probably be a little bit of a confidence builder for Ricky Slade. Getting into the next question, asking about running back by committee, Kane, ha- uh, you know, Noah Kane looked good on the touchdown drive. Why not ride the hot hand the rest of the pit game? That's a completely separate question. I'm not sure. I, I, I honestly, I would have given Noah Kane another shot. And I, and I don't, like I said, I don't, didn't mind them going right back to the two running back to formation to see what they could get. But you would have liked to see on the next drive, Noah Kane try, try and grind it out a little bit. Of course, he, he strikes me as a, as a guy that you can really use in the four minute offense. Journey Brown Boom. is the home run hitter. But Noah Kane's a guy that can can fall forward. I think one interesting stat that I wrote down: Penn State on uh, combined first and second down uh, ran back to back plays on first and second down just four times. Two of them were to Noah Kane. One one time resulted in a first down. The second time re- resulted in a touchdown. He's a guy that can fall forward, get you some tough yards. Guy, a buddy texted me from the stands the other day. Said he's Tony Hunt. I think that's a great uh, comparison. He's always going to move forward. Um, he's. Uh, He's really uh, a different style back than you're used to, and I can understand why Penn State fans like him so much. I don't think he's all that much better than Devin Ford, but his running style kind of suits what, what Penn State fans are used to and Penn State fans are comfortable with. 
the four minute offense is right where I was going because that has just been, they've been looking for a solution there. Well, I don't, it, it's just been a very repetitive nature to the situation on their four minute offense and the outcomes uh, a lot. It seems. And, and, I, and I understand, years. I understand putting, or not wanting to put a freshman out there, you know, cause he puts the ball on the ground, you know, it's a new situation, but I don't think that the experience gap, you know, this isn't, taking Saquon off and putting on a younger back or taking Miles Sanders off and putting in a younger back. I think you can do it with Noah Kane. I think he, you know, in the little that he, we've seen from him so far, I think he does fit into that situation. And I don't think the experience gap between he and whether it be Journey Brown or Ricky Slade is all that great in which you, you can't trust him in that role. And I'm not buying the the lack of trust. Not that you, not that you're selling it, but you put Noah Kane in the game on on a first and goal from the what three yard line after after Sean Clifford ran 59 yards to get you there, and in a game that was close against Buffalo at that time, you trusted Noah Kane to put him, you know, give the ball to him in that situation. They've trusted Devin Ford to do something similar uh, early on against Pitt after that long journey Brown run. So. Uh, ball security is an issue for Ricky Slade. Unfortunately, in his young career here, it's popped up a couple of times, but it doesn't seem like that that's deterring them from using these freshmen. So it, it, I'm not necessarily buying that as a reason you wouldn't send him out there, but uh, he's a guy that had that momentum. And it, it, that's that's definitely a, a carryover question that I think we'll, we'll probably have to, to see how they do deal with the hot hand philosophy because it has not been instituted at all through three games. And, and Noah Kane to me, is the guy where his reputation is He's not going to lose yards. He's probably going to gain at least a few. He may not run for 80 on the play, uh, but he's going to move forward, as you said. And, and as James Franklin said in the postgame press conference on Saturday, you know, he, he'll, he'll, he'll get hit at three and he'll give you five because he, he moves forward. It seems like that's the perfect guy you've been looking for to avoid those third and nine situations where uh, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If you throw the ball and it's an incompletion, the, the clock stops. If you run the ball and you pick up three yards, you got to punt the ball and all of a sudden you're putting your defense um, you know, back in the pressure cooker with a few minutes left. We've seen Penn State deal with that time and time again. Noah Kane seems like a potential solution there, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I should also say, Journey Brown, you know, he's been a little bit better between the tackles than I think a lot of people anticipated as well, but Noah Kane fits the bill. The other question here, and this is a, this is a wild card, Sean, because what an interesting situation that has, has developed down in Tuscaloosa, where the number one overall recruit in 24-7 sports rankings on the 2019 class that just signed last winter, Antonio Alfano out of New Jersey, a guy who spent a lot of time in Happy Valley during his recruitment, I believe he had a Penn State hat on the table uh, toward the end there, uh, but he is apparently gone, you know, missing in action down there. Now, now the story is some great reporting from the our Alabama site here on twenty four seven as well. Nick Saban, the latest thing we got from Nick Saban is saying that that Alfano has essentially quit on his Alabama student athlete career, uh, quit on academics, uh, quit on showing up to the football field. The other end of the spectrum is, you know, I believe it was his mother put out a statement last week when, when this was kind of really reaching the media because of his absence on the practice field, his absence in the games, and a guy who was that you know, highly rated as a recruit, you're going to draw attention. Uh, I guess his grandmother, uh, a member of his family, I believe it was grandmother, is very gravely ill. It has uh, kind of thrown him into a rough mental state. He's far from home. Not the first time we've heard that, but I don't think Nick Saban's going to go out and make those kind of statements if that's all it is. Yeah, it just went to the next level yesterday, uh, pulling out the Q word, uh, Saban. I mean, that's uh, that's really, really, I don't know that you can come back from that um, because that's that's a really strong statement. And I believe that's a measured statement from Nick Saban. Um, Alfano, it, it's it's an interesting story. It's, it's not... Um, 
I don't know. It's it's kind of heartbreaking when you think about it. this kid has some demons. I don't think there's any d- doubt about that. We knew throughout his recruitment that there were issues. He was at three high schools in three years, um, not particularly well received by you know anybody that's coached him. Um, and it's it's really a situation where w- what's the next step for this kid? Does he you know does he need outside help? What the interesting thing here is this kid is so phenomenally physically talented. I mean, this is a kid that's been on the radar since he was in eighth grade, uh, came to camp camp, to camp with Penn State a couple of times. Um, there's a reason he was rated as he was. This is a kid that's, you know, probably is one of those guys that can play college football for two years and, and be ready for the NFL. Um, unfortunately, it looks like a situation where if he's in the NFL in three years, it'll be a minor miracle just uh, because of the path that there, how he started this path. Um, what's interesting from a Penn State perspective is is you have to you know you have to take a look at it. I mean, I, I mean, it, it, it's it's something that you have to use all your resources to realize: is this going to be a guy that's worth giving a second shot? Um, are these problems manageable? Um, is a is a setting like Penn State, which is close to home but also far away from a, a lot of the stuff that he comes from, is this an opportunity for him to to to, to redeem himself? And right now, there's no answer for that. I think Penn State has looked into it. I think Penn State owes it to themselves to look into it because of what he can do for the football team. And, you know, really, there's no criminal record that I'm aware of or anything like that. So that's that's one way to, to look at it. Penn State would be selling themselves short if they didn't look at it um, because you're, you're trying to make your team better. I don't see it coming around to that. I, I, I really don't think he's going to end up at Penn State. I mean, maybe he goes home. I know he's got some Rutgers connections. Maybe he ends up somewhere up there. Maybe he ends up at a JUCO where he can spend a couple of years and you know get a, get his life back where he needs to get it. Um, but no, I think it's an interesting situation just because of his physical talent. And, and I have very little doubt that eventually someone in the NFL or possibly the XFL um, will take a chance on him just because he is so physically talented. But Penn State, you got to do your research. You got to see what's out there. Uh, Once again, I I look at, uh, you know, he picked Alabama over Penn State and Georgia. I look at that theory that, hey, I only want kids that want to be at Penn State. And I think it's a complete crock. It's an an absolute terrible saying. You want the best kids that that can help you win football games. And if you can redeem him and make him a positive part of your locker room, make him a positive part of your program, um, then, then, then you jump in. That said, there's enough baggage here. I just don't see it happening anytime soon. Yeah, I don't know enough about this. And let's also keep an 18-, 19-year-old maximum. And I, I got to talk with Antonio Alfano, as I'm sure you did, throughout his recruitment process. And being a New Jersey guy myself, heard about him very early on, I think from his freshman year in high school. And he's been on the radar a long time. And uh, he's talked about working to this point. And, and, and for it to fall apart this quickly, unravel at a place like Alabama, uh, let me just tell you one thing. Five, five or six years ago, there was a player at Alabama came in and and was really cast aside earlier because of what Nick Saban referred to as behavioral issues. He might be on your fantasy team. It's Alvin Kamara. So there is a second hope for for some of these guys, and and he is early enough in his career where where he can rebuild this thing. You'd like to think he has a mentorship, you know, not just the family structure, but someone who has maybe gone through the process and had some highs and lows of the college level, maybe went on to play. I think there's got to be some resources there for him. But I think you know, Penn State has to do its homework. There's enough familiarity with the family, with coaches who have worked with him. You know, Penn State did their homework already, so they got the file that they can kind of throw on their desk. Franklin and his coaching staff can can rummage through it. Sean Spencer, etc. But yeah, very curious to see where this goes. And 
first and foremost, just kind of concerned about this kid as a human because this is an opportunity for him to set himself up for life if he goes about this the right way um, and, and to you know retire and do whatever he wants potentially you know by the time he's in his early 30s. And obviously, that's, there's a lot that goes into it, health and, 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 and everything involved there, but it's all there for Antonio Alfano. And there are so many young high school football players who would give anything to spend you know 10 minutes on the practice field with Alabama and to be able to prove themselves and the fact that he's just not present there right now and uh, I'll leave the deeper digging to our Alabama reporters and we'll stay tuned to, to see if anything develops on the Penn State front but I, I would be absolutely shocked if they had not at least invested some resources into the situation and, and now with it being a bye week uh, maybe even a further deep look at, at, at the process but I don't know where he's going to stand in terms of eligibility. Uh, God knows what kind of transfer situation and how the NCAA would handle this one. Um, But Nick Saban said he quit. We're halfway through September, and this was the number one recruit in the country. It's pretty much uncharted territory, and you don't get to really say that genuinely in recruiting anymore because kind of everything's happened and all the crazy stuff has been done. Have not seen something like this where, where a kid flames out so fast at a marquee program before you even have a chance to assess his career there. Uh, so we'll see what happens with Alfano. That, yeah. that was a, that was a tricky question, though. Yeah, the most the most important thing is he gets it together because he does have an opportunity to, as you mentioned, set himself up for life. Um, whether you uh, agree with that or approve of that, whatever, um, it doesn't really matter because the NFL is about talent. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I, I don't think the transfer situation, uh, you know, from an eligibility standpoint, is all that important. He just got to, you know, because I think wherever he ends up, I don't think he's going to play for a while, and I think that's probably the best thing. Um, what he did at Alabama, if you followed him closely, really not that surprising because that's been what's going on. Penn State was really hot and cold on him as a recruit. Uh, the physical talent, you see all this and you, you, you're just wowed by, you know, the 11 inch hands and the, and the physical stature and the motor and just going down to, to San Antonio and, and kicking people around. Um, but it's just, it, you, you sort of get blinded by that sometime. It makes me think, and this is a much smaller scale, but when Penn State took Zade Esau from, from Central Dolphin, I mean, Bill O'Brien, uh, he saw Zade walk in and he saw an NFL linebacker just walk into his office, offered him right away. Of course, that went, you know, in a different direction very quickly. Um, but uh, no, it's just what, these situations where these kids are so talented, you owe it to yourself to, to take a look into it. And that doesn't mean you give them a roster spot. That doesn't mean you give them a scholarship, but you, you give them an, uh, an, an opportunity to win you over. And if it doesn't work, hey, you've got all the power in this situation. And now that you've heard our, our take on this and you maybe made your mind up and said, oh, this kid sounds like trouble, do yourself a favor. Turn on his huddle tape from his last year of high school and then tell me how you feel about and, the kid and whether you're and willing to open the door part, for him. That's part of the problem, too, is just he's so he's so incredible. And that's the thing that I always reference when talking to people about Alfano. So physically talented, so physically like nothing that you've seen uh, up and up passionate. In. I mean, this kid, you talk about the motor thing is he yeah. is ridiculously passionate on the football field. Yeah, he's, he's got a skill set that any kid in America would love to have uh, just upstairs. Like I said, there, there's some demons that work there and it's just, it's tough to overcome and it's a really sad situation. Um, he's always been nice to you and I um, it's never been, you know, it, we've never dealt with that side of him. Um, but it's a, it's a really unfortunate situation. And, you know, just hopefully it's one of those situations where you're, you know, reading about him as a, a potential 
undrafted free agent or an invite to eat a camp or maybe even a draft pick rather than reading about him in, in a police blotter down the, down the line. Yeah, well, let's hope that's definitely the case. And, and as I said, if Penn State ends up being a factor there and in his next search for, for another spot, we'll be all over it here at Lions 24-7. For now, we'll put that topic to rest. And I think it's time to put ourselves to rest. We're at 92 minutes into this thing, Sean. You are heading down to Florida. I'm heading to Piscataway, New Jersey this weekend for that huge, huge major implication game, Boston College versus Rutgers. Uh, so we got our own little getaways. You, <laughs> sir, are a glutton for punishment. My goodness. Did, did I tell you they serve alcohol in the stadium now? They better. They better have it in the press <laughs> All right, box. Sean, well, yeah. I think, I think that's enough for today. Uh, we'll be back next week, back on our normal schedule, and so will Penn State as they get ready for their Big Ten opener. Not quite normal, though. It's a Friday night game. Uh, for now, we're stepping aside. On behalf of Sean Fitz, I'm Tyler Donahue wishing you all a wonderful weekend.